Well, so good evening, everyone. And um, this is an auspicious event that you've shown up here this evening. Auspicious meaning significant and worthy of honoring that you came out tonight on a rainy night to sit. So I honor you all. Um, what I wanted to talk about tonight is happiness. Um, you know, in our culture, there's been a lot of talk lately about happiness. Um, you know, books have been written and research is being done. And um, I recently read an article um, in the Chronicle um, that um, said that even though happiness is something that um, each one of us as human beings longs for, um, the scientists really haven't been interested in delving into it until recently because um, they believed until recently that um, our capacity for happiness was hardwired into us. In other words, we were stuck with whatever setting on the happiness scale we were born with. But it now seems that they have a different view and that it does now appear to them possible that we can work on becoming happier. And they're, you know, they're now even conducting studies into how this can be done. But as practitioners and students of the Buddhist teachings, I think it's safe to say that most of us in this room are really way ahead of the scientists and the self-help book writers. After all, how to be happy in this life was the central quest of the Buddha, wasn't it? Freedom from suffering, liberation, the Buddha was essentially talking about happiness. And the Dalai Lama has been telling us for years that he believes the very purpose of our lives is to seek happiness. And that happiness can be achieved through training the mind. In fact, the Dalai Lama defines Buddhism as a training of the mind to deal with the afflictive emotions, those being greed, hatred, and delusion. And I think that we, we can all probably agree that these so-called afflictive emotions, greed, hatred, and delusion, are what is at the root of all the suffering in the world. If we look personally uh, within us and collectively outside of us, the wars, the injustices, the great gap between um, wealthy and poverty-stricken. And it's really good, I think, to remind ourselves of this central, uh, central view of these teachings. And after all, the Buddha did not concern himself, really, with those big existential questions that um, human beings have been struggling with for centuries and centuries. You know, uh, where did I come from? What happens to me when I die? You know, how did the universe 
come into existence. I mean, no, no human being has yet been able to answer these questions. The Buddha, however, concerned himself with really a very basic, simple, and essential question. Now that we find ourselves here, how can we be happy in this life? And he did find the answer for himself, didn't he? He, he became enlightened. He uh, became free from suffering through his practice of what we now know as insight meditation and mindfulness. And unlike our scientists previously believed about happiness, that basically we're stuck with whatever setting we have, the Buddha did not believe that things were predetermined, that human beings arrive in life um, irreversibly hardwired, that we're just cogs in some cosmic machine. He believed in the possibility of choice, the possibility of human transformation. He believed in freedom, the possibility that each one of us can become free from suffering in this life, each one of us in this room. And of course, our choices, the choices that we make and the actions that we take um, are significant. They do matter. Uh, This is the law of karma, right? I mean, and if you're paying attention in your life, you know that skillful and wholesome acts lead to happiness. Unskillful and unwholesome acts lead to suffering, right? So, what I'd like us to think about is, you know, what is the nature then of true happiness? Uh, Daniel Gilbert is a Harvard psychologist who is now working in the field of happiness studies. There is actually such a thing as the field of happiness studies. And Daniel recently wrote a book called Stumbling on Happiness. And um, he was recently uh, interviewed for this um, publication, Sambala Sun. And I just wanted to read one excerpt from this interview with Mr. Gilbert. The interviewer asks him, what do you think of the fact that the idea of happiness is enshrined in the U.S. Constitution? And he answers, the Constitution promises three things, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's interesting. It's not the pursuit of liberty, liberty you're given, but all you're given about happiness is the right to try to find it. And there's a lot of wisdom in that because, of course, nobody can guarantee you happiness. They can only guarantee that you are alive and free to pursue it. Then he says, my synonym for the pursuit of happiness is living. I really think that's what life is all about. Some people 
will object because to them happiness stands for a kind of bovine contentment, the pleasures of the flesh. Surely life must be uh, about something more than that type of happiness. Well, I don't think it is because we can achieve happiness through some of the most sublime things, the things that we admire and cherish rather than the things we indulge in like chocolate and a good orgasm. Those are sources of happiness too, but we know from data that altruistic acts, for example, are more powerful sources of happiness. So altruistic acts, uh, compassion, loving kindness, generosity, these can be a great source of happiness. And yet, many people um, in our culture still seem to believe that true happiness depends on having everything go their way on some sort of luck system, right? I mean, I think in people's minds, happiness, or many people's minds, happiness is something that may happen to them at some time in the future if they're lucky. When I get that great plum job, when I find that right partner in life, when I get that facelift and body tuck, and I get that perfect look, then I know I'll be happy. Right? I mean, this is the way a lot of people think. <clears throat> but I think that um, as serious practitioners of mindfulness and insight meditation, we know, or we have a good sense, that to be truly happy, solidly happy in our lives, we cannot rely on circumstances outside of ourselves to be the source of our happiness. If we are truly mindful of the way things are in this life, we know that nothing is permanent. We know we can't take that plum job, we can't take that perfect partner, we can't take that beautiful, perfected body with us when we leave this life. So, how else to cultivate happiness? I wanted to read to you a short passage from um, a book by Upandita called In This Very Life. Upandita is a famous, if you don't know him, a famous Burmese teacher. He's quite elderly now, um, but he was actually um, my teacher's teacher, uh, Gil's, one of Gil's teachers. So <clears throat> Upandita, he, Upandita is um, talking about essentially the, um, uh, the afflictive emotions, greed, hatred, and delusion. And he says, a person whose mind is free of these painful, oppressive qualities experiences an exquisite happiness and peace that cannot be bought with money. His or her presence becomes calm and sweet so that others feel uplifted. This inner freedom is independent of all circumstances and conditions. And it is only available as a result of ardent meditation practice. 
And then he says, the goal and result of Vipassana meditation is to be free from all kinds, all shades, and all levels of mental and physical suffering. So Upandita is saying that it is precisely that movement of desire or greed in the mind, that perpetual unrest, that constant dissatisfaction with the way things are, that always kind of looking towards the future, once I get that job, that right partner, that perfect body, that it's precisely that movement of mind away from the timeless present moment, away from being alive in the here and now, that this is precisely what robs us of our happiness and precisely what causes our suffering. The poet Hafiz said, the mind is ever a tourist wanting to touch and buy new things and toss them into an already filled closet. <laughs> well, this is, <laughs> well, this is certainly a metaphor for our culture, isn't it? Our culture thrives on minds out of control with desire, constantly driving us to acquire more things and to deny the reality of our, our own bodies so that, you know, many people, women mostly, are driven to actually change their bodies with surgery so that they look more like, I don't know, people, beautiful people in the ads. I don't know. You know, I have a little phrase that I like to repeat to myself when I find that my mind is running ahead towards the future and thinking, you know, once I find myself in this circumstance, then everything will be okay, or else I'm getting worried and anxious that some particular thing won't work out in the future and disaster is just around the corner. When I, when I get in that state of mind, I like to just repeat to myself, here and now, all is well. Here and now, all is well. If you can think back to the first time you sat in meditation, what was the first thing you noticed? You probably noticed that your mind was out of control, jumping here and jumping there like a little monkey and chattering away. (laughs) Um, And our culture really does take advantage of this state. If we allow our out-of-control minds to drag us around, in life, then we know we're probably going to end up in some circumstances and situations that we probably wouldn't consciously have chosen to be in. So this training of the mind to deal with greed, hatred, and delusion is absolutely necessary for bringing happiness into our lives. And as we contemplate our lives in this way, I think it's very important to invite this question. How do we want to frame our lives? How do we want to view um, our life here as a human being? 
what makes our lives meaningful. When I was a small girl growing up in the suburbs back in the 1950s, I really wondered a lot about those kinds of existential questions. You know, what was I doing here? What what is this life? You know, how did I end up in this funny looking body? You know, these flailing limbs and these fingers and these kind of globs of jelly here that we call eyes, these protuberances. My head, I really did. I was kind of astounded and puzzled by my own existence. But, you know, I looked around me and all the adults, no one, no one else seemed to be astounded or puzzled. Everyone was very busy, you know, going to work and mowing the lawns and cooking and cleaning in those, you know, those very modern post-war kitchens that everyone was so proud of. Just as if, you know, there was nothing really to wonder about. So, as a child, I was really aware of and caught up in the mystery of life. I think many children are. So, how do we lose this sense of mystery then? How do we lose it as we grow older? I mean, isn't it amazing that we're here (laughs) in these amazing bodies? The Buddha used a parable to um, express the miracle of human existence. He said, imagine that a turtle sets out to swim the world's oceans. And somewhere in the oceans, a lifesaver, a floating ring, is thrown out into the water. The chances of having a human birth are the same as the chances that when that turtle decides to surface, that his head will come up right through the center of that ring. Human life is a precious, rare occurrence, but we get so busy, we get so caught up in all the little details of our lives that we forget. Wes Nisker, who um, some of you may know, is a very well-known Dharma teacher. Um, he's written several books that combine um, scientific observations with, with the Dharma. And Wes describes our human bodies as one of Mother Nature's finest works of art. And he loves to, in his books and in his talks, he loves to quote these mind-blowing Statistics like if we stretched our entire circulatory system out, the arteries and all the veins and the capillaries, that the length of them would circle the earth a couple of times. And he also likes to point out that, um, that really the external world, the world external to us, is basically silent and colorless. And that it's only with the combination of our sense organs, these funny little globs of jelly here and these protuberances, the combination of those with our minds, that's what creates sound and color and everything that we perceive. This is 
truly a miracle. And he um, also talks uh, about DNA and the fact that within each one of our 10 trillion cells, there's a drop of what he calls seawater. And within that drop is a two-yard long string of DNA. And he says if we stretched our DNA strands end to end, they would go around the earth several million times. These are astounding things, but, you know, we just somehow don't think about them. Rumi says, awe is the bomb that will heal our eyes. So, going back to my childhood, when I finally uh, left home for college, then I was sure that I was going to find some wise scholarly professors who would help me look at these big questions and, and maybe find some answers. So, I took a, um, a philosophy course. And again, I didn't find much in the way of answers. But what I did find was a lot of dark ponderings, <laughs> really dark ponderings on the nature of existence. For example, here's an uplifting quote, uplifting quote from Schopenhauer. If you want a safe compass to guide you through life, you cannot do better than accustom yourself to regard this world as a penitentiary, a sort of penal colony. (laughs) So, as a young woman, there I was. I was was looking for a light, and what I found was more darkness. It was just... Not very satisfying. And um, I have to say that since I um, have gotten deeply into these teachings, I finally have found the light. (laughs) So, getting back to that question, how do we want to frame our lives? When we look around us at other people in our culture, it's easy to see that many are keeping so busy, essentially, that they really never really take time to contemplate this question. I mean, in our culture, there are so many distractions and entertainments. We can keep ourselves totally entertained from uh, morning till night, right? I mean, there's, there's no end to, you know, what we can find in terms of distraction. But as uh, Gil once said, no one ever became enlightened by keeping busy. And then I think there are some people who have thought about this, this question and who basically have decided they would like to frame their lives around um, success in a career or um, amassing wealth or becoming famous or infamous. I mean, it seems that people are willing to do any foolish thing these days in order to attract the media. I mean, I'm sure you've seen some of these reality TV 
TV shows. It's just incredible. <laughs> um, but anyway, so there's nothing wrong with, with these views of life, nothing wrong with framing your life um, around a career or wealth or fame or whatever. But the important thing is that we do take the time to reflect and to decide, you know, what is our view? What does it mean to us to be a human being in this life? Certainly, Schopenhauer had a very clear and distinct view. Um, For myself, the way I like to frame my life is with the view that I want to be happy. I want to be truly happy in this life. I want to be free from suffering. I want to be free from stress. I want to be calm. And I want to be peaceful. As I go through my day, I want to be mindful enough and present enough to cause the least amount of suffering for myself and for those around me. Because one thing I know for certain is that when I cause suffering for someone else, then I know I'm going to suffer. So when we sit, the qualities that are nurtured along with mindfulness are the qualities of compassion, kindness, patience, integrity, generosity. And as we know from or heard from the studies that Daniel Gilbert and his colleagues are conducting in the field of happiness studies, these are exactly the kinds of altruistic acts that do lead to happiness. So if these are qualities um, that are important to you, and important to the way that you would like to frame your life, then you're coming to the right place, to this sacred space that we've created here where we can practice together. When we sit cultivating mindfulness and bringing our minds more under our control instead of the other way around, we are creating the conditions that allow us to um, return to or to reclaim our true nature, our Buddha nature. And not that we always get that with our sittings. Some sittings, let's face it, are difficult, unpleasant, painful. But at least we know that when we do sit, we are creating the conditions for connecting with this true identity, a larger sense of self versus that small self. That small self that's always caught in fear and self-loathings and problems and dissatisfactions. So, the large self versus the small self. When I was on retreat last year in Yucca Valley, 
uh, Jack Cornfield, who is another great teacher in our tradition. He told a story about a wealthy businessman who went to visit Picasso. And this businessman, he wanted a painting from this famous artist to, uh, to add to his collection. Uh, but when he met Picasso, he, um, he said to him, you know, why don't you paint more objective pictures? You know, pictures that look more like things really are. And he didn't get much of a response from P- Picasso, so he took on a, a, a more bullying attitude. And he pulled out um, a, a photograph, a snapshot of his wife. And he said, well, like this picture of my, my wife, why don't you paint something that looks like she really is? And Picasso looked at the photograph and he said, well, hmm, she's rather small <laughs> and flat. <laughs> so why do we sit? We sit to examine our small self with this larger self, this greater, more spacious awareness that each one of us has within us. And the Buddha offered us this practice, after all, as a tool, as a technique that we can use in our pursuit of happiness, in our efforts to get free from suffering. And we sit to strengthen our mindfulness, like building up a muscle. As our mindfulness develops, then we begin to enjoy the fruits of it, the ability to be awake in the present moment, to be fully present for each moment um, of our lives. We see that our hearts open and we see the qualities of compassion and integrity and kindness, patience and generosity coming more and more into our lives. And as we know, these qualities are a source for true happiness. We sit to nurture a happiness, a sense of contentment and peace that has nothing to do with what's going on outside of ourselves. Um, A sense of happiness that can weather the greatest sorrows in our lives as they come and go. Of course, a key ingredient for this sense of happiness is equanimity. Equanimity is the crown of what we call the four sublime states. Those states being metta or loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Equanimity is uh, that solid and unshakable balance of mind that stays steady through all the emotional highs and lows that we encounter in our day. It's what helps us maintain that feeling of 
slight separation of not getting caught in those highs and lows as they come at us. And I want to be very clear that I'm not talking about, um, when I talk about equanimity, I'm not talking about indifference to life's joys and sorrows. I'm talking about experiencing them fully, but with that slight sense of separation, that feeling of steady connection, that knowledge that the highs are not permanent, just as the lows are not permanent. The highs and lows are part of the river of life, really. And just like a river that runs very smooth and tranquil in some stretches and then rushes down through boulders and rocks and crashing, crashing through different stretches, this is the way life is, really. And... So we maintain equanimity through it all, through success and failure, through loss and gain, through honor and blame. We sit and we practice so that we can stay steady through it all. And we sit to return to our true self, to who we really are. I remember that line from the Joni Mitchell song, we are stardust, we are golden. But it's so easy to forget that. We get so busy. You know, there's an old Hindu story that tells about a tiny baby um, in the womb, a tiny baby just about to be born. And... She says to herself, I must not forget. I must not forget. And then she's born into all the glittering, dazzling, bright chaos of this world. And she says, I'm already forgetting. I'm already forgetting. So, again, I urge you to take time to reflect carefully on how you would like to frame your life. What is your view? And after all, you know, right or wholesome view is that first step on the Buddha's noble eightfold path towards liberation, towards freedom from suffering towards true happiness. And also, I would like to urge you to take joy and delight in your meditation. And let it refresh you so that you look at the world and yourself with new eyes. Suzuki Roshi says, in the mind of the beginner, there are many possibilities. In the mind of the expert, there are few. So I hope that you can leave here tonight with fresh eyes, with beginner's mind, with delight in being present for this lovely and thankfully moist dark evening.
<laughs> so I wanted to end by reading. Um, this is a song, really, um, by the venerable Lana, Lama Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation. Don't strain yourself. There is nothing to do or undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all, has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Marvelous. Everything happens by itself. So, um, just, I guess I'll open it to any uh, questions or comments that anyone has this evening. No questions? No comments? I have a comment. What's your comment? I got three stories from your dog. Why do you think that Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you study them scientifically, the way that, well, obviously the scientists and that, and, um, and our friend Wes Nisker, if you really look into them, they're just, I mean, they're miracles. We, you know, it always amazes me in the Bible, you know, that they're talking about. Well, we have to have miracles. We have to. Well, we have so many miracles. We're just not noticing them. 
it's just all the complexity that we have just within our bodies and our brains. Um, it's just astounding that, that we actually can navigate our way through the world. And that we really do create our, our own world. We create it through our senses and through our minds. You know, you talked about the nowness and just being in the moment, like, and breathing and relaxing and finding, you know, I, I get real joy from just the most simplest things. You know, like you said, the rain and the clouds and the walk and a bike mm-hmm. ride and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that overstimulation of too many things is, is uh, not good for me, so... Um, I really cherish this moment when we're here. Thank you. Well, thank you. You're lucky. (laughs) You're among the lucky ones. Yes. I uh, found uh, Gil's Dharma teachings on the web. I'm from Michigan. I'm out here on business. Um, take a moment when you go outside and feel the rain on your face, because in Michigan it's minus five right now. So. <laughs> Better rain than minus five. <laughs> yes, we really do. In California here, we really do live in a Garden of Eden, don't we? I mean, it's just um, it's just amazing how comfortable it is and it's just not that it's just not very challenging it doesn't build character the way that uh, <laughs> you know I mean I, I grew up in uh, upstate New York in Rochester you know right there on Lake Ontario and and then before I moved to California I uh, lived in Maine for about 10 years and yeah that's it's a whole different game back there <laughs> Well, why don't we um, then take just a few minutes and sit together again.
Um, I'd like to end with a verse from the Metta Sutta. Let none deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings.